This is the Registry Podcast. Welcome to the Real Perspectives Podcast, where we delve into the world of commercial real estate and the leaders who shape its future. I'm your host, Vladimir Bosanets, and in today's episode, we have the privilege of speaking with Warren Waksberger, the Chief Executive of ACOM Capital, a prominent division of ACOM, the world's leading infrastructure and design firm, now with a very prominent investment arm as well. With a wealth of experience in deal acquisition, transaction structuring, and investment execution, Warren has been a driving force behind the success of Acom Capital since its inception in 2013. Join us as we explore his journey from his early career at KPMG to his pivotal role in real estate investment and his contributions to the executive committee of the Lusk Center for Real Estate at the University of Southern California. Stay tuned for valuable insights and captivating stories that will inspire you to learn more about this organization and its leader. Welcome to the podcast, Warren. Warren, good afternoon. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing well. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I am in uh, Los Angeles. I wish I could say sunny Los Angeles, but it is uh, gray and cloudy Los Angeles today. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes sometimes you, you do get that as well, right? Um, uh, Warren, uh, by way of introduction, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, you, your sort of background in, the, in this industry, how you got to this role, and um, sort of what, what does your group do at ACOM? Great. Thanks, Vlad. Um, I, I actually took a little bit of a circuitous route to, uh, to the industry out of the uh, grad school, I started in consulting. Um, and I realized very quickly that consulting wasn't for me, but it was a great experience in terms of learning how to think. Um, and what I mean by learning how to think is it really taught me how to take a problem, really dissect that problem, um, and get to a place where I could structure uh, a solution. And so uh, I did consulting for a few years, I left, I moved to Phoenix uh, for a few years. And Pick uh, the worst markets, the worst time, uh, and the worst asset type uh, is what we were <laughs> right. doing. Uh, so we were doing retail development in secondary cities in the Southwest um, with a small fund. And uh, I learned basically what, what not to do. Um, hindsight being 2020, the time it was horrible, but uh, looking back, it really gave a lot of uh, lessons learned in terms of um, recourse on loans, uh, how to not have certain concentrations, um, and really going through that process uh, was was an eye-opening experience. I then got a call in 2009, 2010-ish uh, from the guys who I'd worked with in consulting who uh, had become the CEO and CFO of, of AACOM. Um, and they had uh, really reached out to say, we're thinking about starting a principal investment business. Uh, why don't you come over um, and let's think about how to really launch this off the ground. Uh, and the rest is history. Um, we now um, manage third-party capital, uh, focused primarily on ground-up developments yeah. around the country, um, and really trying to develop best-in-class assets uh, across all asset types. Yeah, we should just take a moment to explain to the listeners what ACOM does, and sort of your group within the comp within the company um, is is somewhat unique as well, right? 
for sure, for sure. So um, that, that's a, that's a great point. So so ACOM is a multinational um, global sort of infrastructure construction company um, from doing uh, all the stuff you're seeing in the news in Saudi Arabia. ACOM is 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 a big part of that. Uh, to owning Tishman Construction, who built, for example, uh, the new World Trade Center, the original World Trade Center, uh, one Vanderbilt, um, and a number of iconic stadiums around the country. Um, and the thesis was originally that um, we could use a principal investment business to really become a company that designed, built, financed, and, and operated assets. I think over time, we recognized that that presented a lot of conflicts of interest. And so Acom Capital has become more independent um, through the use of third-party capital. And our connection to the overall Acom business is probably less than, than it was when we originally started. And we were using balance sheet capital. Today, we're much more um, of a traditional real estate private equity firm that sits within um, a larger corporate infrastructure. But, but we operate relatively independently and without the um, financial support today uh, from the mothership, it, it is it is all primarily third party capital that we're deploying. Um, but the fact of the matter is that real estate development construction, because of the fact that we're associated with AECOM, sits within our DNA, and as a result of that, it really gives us a tremendous advantage when looking at development projects. Um, what we've been able to create is a business where within AECOM Capital we have design and construction professionals that allow us to, <clears throat> excuse me, that allow us to um, evaluate projects really from the from bottoms up approach, um, going in and understanding what those costs look like, what the buildability and constructability of projects is. Um, and when we think about what is our special sauce, it's the fact that we have um, that AECOM background in our DNA and that we have an integrated design and construction team within the investment platform uh, that hopefully uh, allows us to evaluate projects um, a little bit more thoroughly. Yeah, and just looking from Acom's website, I mean, the company is, I mean, spread literally across the world. I mean, there are offices in, you know, China, Colombia, you know, Netherlands, you know, Singapore, <laughs> right, places like that. Um, U.S. headquarters are in Dallas. You're in L.A. Is that also part of this sort of distinction of your organization? Um, you know, you're kind of sitting away from, uh, you know, where the headquarters are? Yeah, I don't think so. That's, that, that was necessarily by design in terms of um, how we structured uh, where we're sitting. What ultimately happened was um, when we think about where sort of major centers of capital are on the east and west coast it's really new yeah. york and los angeles and so acom capital sits uh we've got about half of our team in los angeles and half of our team in new york um my i, I probably sit on a plane more than anywhere else um, but that <laughs> right. uh but that allows uh for us to really get in the details and get in the weeds because as you know r real estate is is a local game and the ability sure. to go out see projects um, and really feel and touch it is what makes all the difference. Yeah. And so how big is your team now, uh, given that it's in two offices sort of spread between the two coasts? Yeah. So we've got about 20 people um, between our investments and design construction team. Um, and that allows us to do anywhere from, call it 
15 to 20 projects at once, depending on sort of the stage of, of, uh, of the project, whether it be in uh, pre-development construction or, or asset management. And what geographic markets do you cover? Yeah, so we focus primarily. Well, our our mandate is across the the, the U.S. Um, and I think the markets that we focus on really changes as as the as the cycle moves around. Early on in AECOM Capital's uh, history, we were very much focused on gateway cities: um, Los Angeles, New York, um, San Francisco. And I think as um, time has moved on, and as sort of job growth within the U.S. Um, has has moved around. Our focus has shifted much more towards um, up and coming markets. We we love to say uh, that we love uh, blue cities in red states. Um, and what we mean about that is, is, if you think about the business friendly tax environment of a lot of red states, uh, with the ability to attract employment um, in the blue cities. So examples of that would be Austin, Nashville, Raleigh. Um, really a lot of the Sunbelt markets where we can be in a position that we can take advantage of a lot of the job and demand drivers uh, that are going on that's attracting people to these to, to these cities. And as a result, build the real estate that uh, coincides with the large pop population growth ongoing in these cities. And what types of properties do you guys typically go after? So we... Um, we're, we're, we're fairly asset type agnostic in the sense that um, we really want to do what is best for the piece of land. I'd say our, the majority of our focus is housing, um, so generally multifamily uh, and industrial. Uh, we also focus on mixed use projects where a multifamily project may have a retail component in it. Um, we've done some hotels in the past. It's probably not the right time to be developing hotels today. Um, yeah. But the beauty of our team is that we've got the ability to, to really um, have the expertise to, to underwrite a number of different projects and be highly opportunistic, but at the same time, have the ability to add value at the project uh, that we're developing and bring some uh, subject matter expertise uh, to potentially a developer who has not built that product type before. Have you uh, partnered typically with sort of local operators, um, you know, where they will take like, you know, two, three, four percent of the deal, or do you go into stuff all on your own? So it's generally the former. Uh, we have done the latter where we've had to uh, end up taking over projects. Um, and that has, uh, that gives us an advantage uh, because we do have the ability to build on our own. But in order to reach the scale um, of the capital that we're deploying, uh, it's best for us to take on projects where there's a local developer who's maybe tied up a piece of land. Um, that piece of land, uh, they may be an A-plus retail developer, let's say, but that piece of land dictates multifamily on it. They don't necessarily have that multifamily development experience. And so we'll partner with them, bring our design and construction team in, uh, bring our asset management team in and provide some of the expertise needed uh, to develop multifamily, but at the same time provide 90, 95% of the capital, um, which in turn allows us to really drive alpha. Um, and what I mean by driving alpha is if you think about where we were pre-COVID or even sort of post-COVID pre-rate shock um, environment where the overall real estate market was kind of moving up in tandem, 
So if you invested in real estate, you probably did okay um, as a result of the fact that you were riding the beta. Um, yeah. Where where we think uh, our value add comes from and our de- ability to deliver that alpha is really by partnering with these local operators who may not have the, the institutional expertise or uh, product type expertise coming in at uh, perhaps more favorable terms. And as a result, being in a position where we can uh, make something where it's one plus one equals three. Um, and so I yeah. look at examples of, of projects we, we've done um, where by us coming in, even though we were taking some of the profits, the developer ultimately made more money uh, because of our involvement. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. That makes sense, and it's certainly a model that's uh, you know deployed by by others as well. Um, I would be remiss sort of not to pick your brain a little bit about you know what's going on in the industry today. I mean, here we are, you know, talking you know towards the end of Q two of uh, you know twenty twenty three. Obviously, by the end of this year, things will be very different. But I am curious, you know, your perspective on the market and the industry today. Um, given that you have a perspective uh, that covers the nation and also covers a bunch of different food groups, I am I am curious to sort of hear your um, outlook in terms of you know how the commercial real estate industry is doing. So I think the thing that you need to think about overall is that one shouldn't mistake pockets of distress for a sector wide crash. Um, I think most of the market is more insulated uh, than than what's going on. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that what's going on today, let's put office to, to, to the side for a second, but throughout the rest of uh, real estate, excluding office, it really is all about rates. Um, if someone's locked in a low rate, they'll be okay. Um, even in a recession scenario where uh, fundamentals can fall to sort of the 2008, 2009 lows, um, if, you, if, you have, if you have uh, low rates, you'll be okay. Um, I think where you'll start to see more distress is if you're in properties with bridge debt or CMBS, um, where uh, you're going to see a situation where rates, where you've got short-term debt, rates have increased dramatically, and you're unable to um, to hold on. I think additionally, uh, where we're seeing a lot of um, distress is really on the expense side. Um, across the board, um, going to the sort of that, 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 that rates conversation, revenues are actually pretty up. Um, if you think about inflation, uh, multifamily rents, while they've slowed a little bit from their uh, peaks from, 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 from last year, um, they're, they're still up on a relative basis. Um, and so I think the fact of the matter is that people just didn't expect expenses to increase um, as much as they did. So whether it's debt, whether it's debt, whether it's property insurance, whether it's property taxes, payroll, maintenance, all those things, expenses have just increased dramatically. um, And that's what's causing um, a lot of the potential distress. And I'll get to office in a second as well. Do you think that is also driven by just general inflation, um, you know, construction costs in general, or are there some other kind of you know, drivers that are um, you know, making that situation happen? I think it's a complicated question. Um, I would say one is the labor market in the U.S. is an issue um, across the board. There just is not labor. Um, the easy way to solve that, and I don't want to get too political, is to have some sort of immigration policy reform. 
um, however you like it. Uh, I just don't see that that being in the cards today. But the problem is, is we just don't have enough workers in the workforce, whether it be um, labor at restaurants um, and staff, you, you hear it all the time, whether it be construction workers, whether it be CPAs, whatever it may be. And so as a result of that lack of labor in the workforce, um, you really are seeing significant expenses go up. Insurance is obviously not a result of of a labor side, but 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 that's gone up a lot as a result of inflation, as a result of um, claims increases, and you can probably spend a whole hour talking about why why insurance uh, is is up, and then taxes. Um, you're trying to see local taxes go up, so whether it's in uh, a city like Los Angeles with the quote unquote mansion tax, um, in other cities where they've increased their their transfer taxes, so all of these factors when you combine them together. Uh, start to put a lot of weight on what should otherwise be a pretty healthy, uh, otherwise pretty, pretty be a, a healthy sector. Um, in the U.S., if you just take multifamily or housing, for example, we still have a significant supply demand imbalance with with housing. Yes, yeah. Um, even with all the supply coming online, uh, there's still a significant shortage. I think the, the, the most conservative estimates are like a million and a half, and the most aggressive estimates are. Uh, 4 million um, housing units short. And so um, as a result of that, the underlying fundamentals are still there and still pretty good. Um, and unfortunately, it's 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 only going to get worse. Um, the reason why it's going to get worse is because the lending environment has effectively shut down um, from the banks. And as a result, you're going to see less projects going up. And so we've well, got a lot of deliveries over the next year or two um, after that, it's going to fall off a cliff and you're just going to exacerbate uh, this housing issue, which in turn is going to exacerbate renting increases and costs and so forth. And so um, from our perspective, uh, the ability to actually build today, uh, if you're delivering in three or four years um, and delivering into an upcycle is going to prove what, what we think um, a worthwhile uh, a worthwhile plan of action, primarily because you're just going to see this wall of uh, supply uh, hit, and then there's going to be nothing else. What's interesting about this, um, Warren, you're the second person that I've talked to this week, um, you know, executive kind of, uh, you know, investment, you know, development level person who has said that on the um, revenue side, you know, things have been sort of remained relatively flat on the expense side, things have kind of gone up. And, and this person was, you know, making the point that, you know, uh, rates have relatively, you know, stayed about the same or have been kind of flat over the last decade or so, meaning leasing rates, right? But on the expense side, everything has gone up, right? Um, do, do you see that as well? Do you think that there might be a reset um, coming uh, for, you know, companies to, you know, pay more for leasing corporate space? Maybe an office that's a hard sell these days, but in some other sectors? Um, well, I think it just depends on what you have. I think if you look at the U.S. right now, it's really a case of haves and have-nots. And I think the best example is with an office. So I'm, I'm, these, these are rounded numbers. I'm probably not get them exactly right. But it's something like in office, if you look at buildings over the last two years, buildings built before 2015 – over the last two years have lost about two to 300 million square feet in net absorption. So, 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 so that basically means effectively um, 
almost to New York City, right? New York City has got half a million square feet of half 500 million square feet of office. Almost in New York City has been lost across the country on buildings that have built uh, that that have been built before uh, 2015. If you look at buildings that have been built after 2015, it's actually positive 90 million square feet of net absorption. So what, what what does that tell you? It tells you that there's a real flight to quality. That while people may be taking less space, they're taking space in the newest, nicest buildings because um, <clears throat> for a variety of factors. One, they they want to bring people back to work and bring their employees back to work. And the way you do that is a great Class A office building. Um, a perfect example of that is uh, one Vanderbilt in in New York. Uh, probably never seen higher rents in Manhattan or better leasing than than that building. But you go down the street to Third Avenue uh, to an older, you know, pre-war 1970s building, um, and that building can't sign a lease uh, for, for its life. Um, and so um, what you are seeing as a result of that, and getting back to your question, is haves and have-nots. And it's the same in multifamily, and it's the same in industrial, and it's the same across the board. There is a premium for new. And as a result of that premium for new, you see a spread in the rental rates that that, that those products are, 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 are getting. Um, and so you really have to start dissecting the market um, yeah. down to it's uh, down to the asset level um, to really understand what's going on. Because what happens is when you throw sort of everything together, it, it averages itself out. Um, and if my feet are in the fridge and my head's in the oven, on average, my temperature is okay, but something's burning and something's <laughs> right. cold, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, do you do you see do you see then uh, that some of those other properties that are having a difficult time, you know, finding tenants? Are we in a in a in a in a place where that kind of property is obsolete, um, or is it just sort of a micro you know market dynamic at this point and kind of where where things are? Oh, I think there's a significant portion of the office stock in the U.S. that is functionally obsolete for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, I just think that the ceiling heights, floor plates, all of that just don't work in sort of a new work environment. Um, two, I think from an ESG perspective, uh, if you look, for example, in New York City right now, uh, there are regulations going in place uh, in order to upgrade buildings to meet emissions requirements and so forth. And the cost to do that in older buildings becomes cost prohibitive, right? You'd rather not even own the building uh, than, than do that. Um, and so I believe there is um, a significant portion of the office stock that is completely functionally obsolete. And, and I don't know what, what, what happens to it. I, I really don't know ultimately um, where that is going to wind up. Um, I think the the view that you're going to convert all of it to, to residential is the biggest red herring out there. Um, the floor plates don't work. The MEP right. doesn't work. Um, the ceiling heights don't work. Um, and there's a, just a very, very small percentage um, of buildings where um, it makes sense to convert from office to resi. And probably of that small percentage, the majority are in places where land prices are incredibly high like manhattan for for example so um it is the trillion dollar question i don't know what 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 number it is but it's a big it's 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 a big question of, of what happens to all of these older office buildings 
Given today's sort of lending environment and what is going on, uh, not just with interest rates, but you know, uh, banks are concerned about their exposure to commercial real estate and uh, sort of you know valuations and things like that. Um, obviously, this is one of these things that sort of has to run its course and kind of run through the system. Do you have any insight in terms of you know what impact that's going to have? Any thoughts on you know the potential length of something like this going on? Um, what are what are your thoughts? And and does it also welcome some you know um, alternative kind of you know lending sources like you know private equity um, that you know may kind of take an opportunity you know given sort of where where things are today? Um, okay, so I think that the rise of the alternative lenders to fill a lot of the gaps of the banks is happening right now. Um, so a lot of places where banks were providing capital previously, um, you're just starting to see an acceleration of these alternative lenders, whether it be um, insurance companies, uh, private real estate sort of debt funds, um, be in a position where uh, they are going to um, take some of the um take some of the business from, from, from the banks. And that doesn't necessarily always mean a higher cost of capital. Um, you're starting to see insurance companies come in with relatively um, attractive cost of capital and providing uh, debt to projects. Um, you've seen it with all these sort of super large pr- private equity firms uh, buying insurance companies to get access to that um, base. So whether it's, um, uh, whether it's Apollo, whether it's Blackstone, whether it's uh, KKR, um, they, they all have effectively a bucket of insurance company money that they can provide that is effectively, um, in many cases, a replacement for where, where the banks were, were, were previously. Um, I think on the multifamily side, um, it's been a little bit overblown, uh, the view that uh, banks... Um, that that the that, that that there will be an issue because banks are no longer uh, lending. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FS, FHA, uh, when you combine them, they're the biggest players in multifamily lending. Um, and if you even take it one step further, o- only a very small percentage of those loans are maturing in 2023. Um, and I think the stat is something like more than half won't mature for at least five plus more more, more years. Um, and so if you look at all those government entities, they hold more than half of all multifamily mortgages, um, according to the Federal Reserve. Um, and so as a result of that, you're just not going to see the crash uh, that everybody's pro- projecting with this wall of maturities. Um, now, office and retail, which, um, uh, which use CMBS um, a lot. That's where you're going to see some some, some stress um, as, as as a result of um, this sort of oncoming wall of maturities and, and what's going on and 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 potential issues. Um, but my sense is that uh, there will be players who will start to fill some of the voids created by the banks and the banks, as they often do, uh, they they move in and out of the market and they will come back. Um, and when they do. Um, they'll probably have more competition than they did before uh, with some of these insurance companies and and al- alternative lenders. And this might be a very basic question, but why do you uh, you know not see as much sort of doom and gloom on kind of the you know lending side, but more so on the CMBS side? I, j- just 
just purely because of where the wall maturities is, is, is coming. Um, there's just a significant amount of more, and I don't think it's on the lending side. I think there's a lot of people who took on, who took on bridge debt or short-term uh, floating rate finance that are going to be ha- sure. having issues. Uh, but, but when people talk about this quote unquote wall of maturities that that's coming, um, it really is CMBS. Um, and CMBS just plays a smaller role in multifamily um, than it does for, for, for office or, or, or retail. Um, but, but, but is there going to be stress for sure? I, I don't want to uh, give off the impression that, that there's not going to be issues um, kind of coming about. And there's going to be issues with um, with some of the alternative lenders too, who made uh, short-term floating rate loans. And um, one area that, that we think is really interesting are sort of half-built construction projects. Uh, and we've been approached by a number of debt funds who don't necessarily want or have the expertise to deal with taking over a half-built uh, construction deal. Uh, the borrower's interest rate increased. Uh, they had some cost overruns on projects. Uh, there was a balancing call, for example. Uh, the borrowers are handing the keys back and the lender doesn't necessarily know what to do with it. And so that's where we think there's opportunities to partner with those lenders. Uh, we're in active dialogue with a number of lenders right now to do just that, uh, whether it's to buy the loans, to partner on the loans. But that, that we think is going to be um, a unique source of opportunity that we are uniquely positioned to take advantage of. Yeah, and just down the street, I suppose in LA, there's a big one there that uh, just recently seems like it's going through. Well, that, that one is a whole problem. Uh, that there. one's a whole nother level. Uh, I think the the Oceanwide project. There's something like I think Oceanwide estimates a, over a billion dollars to complete. We think it's actually more. Um, I don't want to get into the specific details of that project, but 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 my sense is is it, it's going to be really interesting to to ultimately see what happens uh, with with that project um, because uh, it's in uh, a part of the market that's very tough right now, which is which is downtown Los Angeles, um, and the numbers, uh, at least as as I've seen, um, are very difficult on, on that particular deal. Um, what about on the equity side? There have been some announcements. You know, some funds have raised you know quite a bit of money uh, for sort of you know distressed opportunities, if if you will. So clearly, there's you know enough money sort of looking for stuff around the industry. Do you um, do, do you think that'll be an interesting kind of play for some of these folks? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, there are groups that are going to be um, taking advantage of. Uh, distress and come in with rescue finance. Um, so like putting pref onto deals that need additional capital. Um, but we have not seen sort of the, the real shoe drop yet where there's just uh, distress everywhere. And, um, and so I think these groups that are raising these uh, distress funds um, are going to have their work cut out for them at least r- right now. Uh, but no doubt they're really smart people who will figure out how to take advantage of it. Um, and I think we think that, 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 that there will be opportunities as a result of it and sort of a reset um, for the markets uh, to um, take advantage of some of the, 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 the issues going on where um, people just had the wrong capital structure for the project. And, and, and as a result, maybe in a position where they, where they are unable to service it. Now, there are certainly going to be opportunities where it's just a bad deal. Um, underlying or the or the ultimate yeah. market wasn't there. And there will be some people who will come in and try to fix that. 
Um, but that's probably not where, where we play. Uh, we, we like to play in situations where it was the wrong capital structure or the wrong, um, the wrong operating partner or the wrong capital equity capital previously where a change there, um, in an otherwise good market will put us in a position where we can, um, hopefully yield uh, a better result. Switching gears to, you know, you guys now, you know, where's your focus over the next, you know, 18, 24 months? So I think our focus um, is across a few places. So one is uh, where we um, can take advantage of sort of these, these, these half-built construction deals um, that we, uh, that we referenced um, earlier on where we can come in, uh, take over the project uh, and be in a position where we can um, where we can drive value. Um, I think two is we're really looking for places where we can where we're putting equity out where 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 we can add value at the project. Um, our goal is to create a best in class asset at a discount to what that equivalent product w- would sell for today, um, and so uh, that really is. Uh, where 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 we drive alpha. So let's say we come into a project and maybe it's at a developer's land value and the developers own that for for, for, for a few years. Uh, we've we've had a lot of um, we've we've had a lot of su- success in that. But I think um, when we think about our overall in- investment strategy, we think it's just going to benefit from sort of both the structural and cyclical trends going on um, in the U.S. right now. Um, so the fact that there is, um, large scale demographic shifts to business friendly States, um, I think that that's going to continue to, to, drive a demand for, for, for housing, um, the flight to quality, um, sort of this leading to the haves and have nots that we've spoken about before. Yeah. Um, the fact that there's sort of changing tenant requirements, um, and sources of user demand, uh, really capitalizing on that. And then finally, um, sort of the regulatory constraints and the impact of, of ESG um, and the ability to um, to create uh, value out of that, I think, are places where where we think uh, the, the, the opportunities are. But from a cyclical perspective, um, all the stress and the rising interest rates, as we spoke about earlier, is leading towards uh, what's going to be continued undersupply um, in markets. And so if we can um, get into projects this year, next year, um, and start construction and deliver two, three years later, uh, and deliver into an upcycle where um, there is uh, a rapidly shrinking supply pipeline. Uh, we think that those opportunities are going to present themselves um, as as uh, good ones. You just mentioned a demographic shift, and uh, you know one of the reasons we started this podcast is as you know as a as a way to you know leverage relationships like like we have with you know you and your firm and others like you, and uh, you know provide sort of a perspective on the industry to a younger demographic that's entering the industry as well, right? Um, I'm curious, you know, as you look back. Um, over some of the lessons learned from your, you know, uh, Phoenix times and since then, right? Um, you know, what would you, what advice would you give somebody, you know, coming into the industry uh, now, and maybe even, you know, some advice you would give to your younger self if you had the opportunity? Um, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the answer is, or my thoughts are, are really as follows. Um, one is 
I live my life with the philosophy of being long-term greedy. Uh, and what I mean by that is that short-termism doesn't, it doesn't get you anywhere. You may get the, the opportunity to get something and you it's get a short-term gain or you can over-negotiate on a deal and get a short-term benefit. But in the long-term, it's not going to uh, ultimately benefit you. Um, you really need to be thinking about things in uh, decade-long periods and not month-long periods. And if you think about um, your negotiating strategy, how what jobs you take, um, how you deal with brokers, how you deal with lenders, how you deal with partners, all of those things, if you take a short-term approach to them, will ultimately put you in a worse-off position in the long-term. If you take a long-term position and you don't worry about the last basis point, you don't worry about the last dollar, um, and you really are in a position where it's not a zero-sum game, um, my personal belief is, is, is that will yield benefits in the long-term. Um, the, uh, the world is memories are, are, are very, uh, are very long. Um, and the one thing you have, uh, is, is your reputation. Um, and you should guard that, uh, appropriately, but additionally, you should be taking on roles that put you in a position where you can learn the most, um, early on, not necessarily the ones that, that pay you the most because, uh, it is a marathon, not, not a sprint. Um, and you'll find yourself in a position where, uh, if you take that long-term, per- long-term perspective, uh, you'll be much better off in the end. Wonderful. Well, Warren, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I really enjoyed this. and uh, yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Thanks for having me on. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers.